pass from Havili was magic. The shift on for Crotty. Boom, far down you go, Quackett Smith. Me, oh my, I haven't enjoyed that. Yes, boy. Sit back, relax, put your belt on. Enjoy. Draft Rugby, the game they play online in heaven. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Draft Rugby Show, episode 26, where we discuss fantasy rugby, the game they play online in heaven. And despite me saying that, we're not going to be talking about fantasy rugby at all today. We're going to be talking about the rugby champs, and we're going to be reviewing the four teams. I've got special guest, new father, Mitch Rev. Are you still new? Are you still a new father? I don't know when that stops. I, I think uh, we may as well count it as a new father, given it's you know first time potting in quite a while uh, as a dad. But yeah, um, it, it's weird being back on the back on the mic. I, I don't really have the time to do it. So all my pods recently have been you know eight in the morning or during a lunch break. So it's it's nice to have the chance to talk footy. Yeah, this way we are recording this in the morning, mate. You're sitting at work, I so you're giving the nod to a few of the other teachers walking past <laughs> at the time. So. Excellent, excellent commitment. You've got your your, your uh, outfit is just prime time. Teacher. Red red jersey over the top, just in case. Beautiful. I, I've gone the um, the Kirtley Beale uh, Australian jersey. I've gone the uh, inspired jersey because I'm assuming that he's going to be picked at 15 next game against South Africa. So I feel I feel like that was the most appropriate one to pick. They're very fitting. Um, it, certain journalists that should never be named uh, seem to be backing that he'll be back in there pretty soon so um i mean at, at the moment i wouldn't wouldn't mind that, that, I saw that mate, yeah. you had you you had your little i mean you, you don't really out, have outbursts but i saw you mm. on twitter pre- pretty active saying that you weren't happy with a few of the stories out there anything in particular that was grinding your gears um the problem is it wasn't in particular there was probably three different um journalists and oh you know people can probably guess who they are anyway but um just shit just absolute shit like some of them are just some nice stories about, you know, the players getting debuts. It's always nice to get that sort of backstory. But then just stuff about like, oh, these players need to come into camp or, you know, Rennie needs to, you know, do X, Y, Z before he's got this win rate. And yeah, just looking at a lot of stats that don't have a lot of relevance. So, yeah, um, I, I think people for the most part have been pretty uh, clever about what they've been sharing and retweeting, which is nice. I did. Um, I, I obviously, like yourself, we're enthusiastic about listening to as many rugby podcasts as we can. can. I was listening to the Super Rugby podcast and they said that Austra- the Australian, I know you're a big fan of them, they're the uh, <laughs> Aussie rugby board are apparently looking for any reason to get rid of Rennie. I'm like, where, where have they gotten this from? <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> they've been oh. so supportive all the way through. Oh, no, but between that and then the Jamie Pandaram, I will shout that out for being absolute, just out of nowhere, like saying, oh, yeah, this is the time for the blood. Like, no Aussie fan is thinking that. No Aussie fan is no. thinking, oh, yeah, this is time to bounce. They recognise New Zealand's not at their strengths, but it's also 20 years of misery. Like, we're not sort we're of getting that over mate. We're going to go yeah, win at Eden yeah. Park. Like, <laughs> and we're going to go two from two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not, not a chance. Yeah, yeah, just stir in the pot. Thanks. Pan Ram's going to be like have his freaking quote up on the wall when the All Blacks change rooms. Maybe he's secretly a Kiwi. That could be why. Yeah, it might be. I mean, I'm, I'm one eighth. I might um dust off the, the lineage and the, the grandparent ancestry eligibility um, if it comes to it, just because, yeah, I, I think uh, the Kiwis will be eating that up uh, like a hot bracket we've just had. Absolutely. Mate, we uh, we said we wanted to get on because you and I are just craving doing a pod, but we want to talk about where the four rugby championship sides are in their development, obviously World Cup next year, but there's been so much going on in the four sides that there's so much to talk about. Um, let's kick it off with Argentina. Um, obviously, they just had a record-breaking win, 41-26 to 26, over Australia, being checked by, uh, coached by... They were checked. The Wallabies were checked by Argentina. <laughs> um, being coached by former Wallaby coach Checker, he mentioned that after the game he broke into tears because he was so emotionally torn about getting such a good win for Argentina but also having the demise of the Wallabies at his own hands. So where do you see them at the moment and how are they tracking? Yeah, Argentina are interesting just in the sense that I think they they have secretly quite a old and established team um, and a lot of people we don't look at them and think that you know this is a season team, but you look at some of the players they're using. They've got a lot of players that are sort of in that you know fifty plus test cap range. Uh, really experienced uh, hookers, really experienced locks, really experienced outside backs. Even with um, you know the likes of Buffelli, uh, Maroni, and Orlando, they've played a lot of caps, um, especially together. So they've got quite a nice mix when everyone's healthy and sort of, um, I guess, gelling. The interesting thing for them's always been 
what they do with the halves. Because I think I've always loved um, Thomas Kabeshi. I think he's awesome. Um, but I think Gonzalo Bertrand has shown that he's an absolute like firework. He's, he's looking really good at the moment. And then Nico Sanchez was, for the longest time, just, you know, kicked over points, bit of a metronomic player, nothing too flashy other than, you know, the, the slight run here or there. But um, they're, they're really relying on Santiago Carreras now. And so it, it's a really interesting option given he's been, you know, outside back considered for um, the first bit of his career. And now he's coming in and I think finally starting to gel um, as a fly half. He's probably just, you know, not had that consistency of the players around him to to really cement himself as as the first choice. But he's starting to look pretty good. Um, so the Argentine team, I'm, I'm really, I guess, really um, concerned about. I, I didn't think we'd lose them. Um, I'm really upset we lost by as much as we did. You know, previously our biggest loss to them was four points in the rugby championship. So um, they've named their team for uh, the New Zealand, you know, tour and the 32-man squad for that. And there's very few changes. So I think it's um, a sign of a team that's building quite nicely. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're definitely probably more settled than any other side other than maybe South Africa. Um, but Australia and New Zealand certainly more settled than both those sides. The Nico Sanchez, I think he's injured, right? Like it's just yeah. um, they're trying to obviously establish Carreras as the backup. But I, I find so interesting with that that they're not using any of their gun young tens or even mm. like, uh, what is it, Udapia, is it? the Yeah, is still in the squad. I think he's 36, so he's... <laughs> You know, is he that in, old in, now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's um he's I guess our sort of Cooper equivalent, except he's even older. But yeah, he's um I think just there as a fail safe, um really reliable player. But I, I think if they're back in the youth, yeah, um, Carreras and Albanos are, are, are two pretty decent options, and I think both still probably twenty four and under. So uh, hopefully they're, they're relying on them. Yeah, well, obviously they uh, they've picked him over Miotti as well, which is probably the other one that surprised me. But Carreras, I, I was so impressed by the way they played on the weekend. It was number one. You know, we'll get to check his influence on the team, but since when are they a kicking team? I just don't understand how he coached the Wallabies for as many years as he did, and we never once saw that tactic. But at the same time, Carreras is known as a running outside back that's moved to 10 and is trying to establish himself in that position. But he kicked really well. I thought he controlled the game fantastically, and it was probably the yeah. first time that he convinced me that he could play 10 because he showed that he has that amount, that ability to control the game, uh, I, I guess, in the, the ways of a more traditional 10. And if you think of uh, Nico Sanchez comparatively, like he is such a good controlled playmaker will draw a couple of cheeky penalties with some soccer style falls. But other than that, just, uh, I guess will help facilitate them dominating with their pack. So if they are able to keep their dominance up in their forward pack, and I must say, despite being down a few props, their scrum looks particularly good at the moment. Um, and then they have a running 10 that has the ability to kick on the back foot. If he needs to, they can be a real weapon. I, I actually think there's some real upside for them. Yeah, I think the scary thing about the uh, 48 to 17 point win is that they're probably not the finished product yet. Like that isn't them really gelling completely. That's just, you know, them capitalizing on a lot of our mistakes. I, I think they've got time. Once they get their backline completely in order, um, they could really fire. And I know we've been sort of talking about the, the combinations, how, you know, sort of settled they are. But one of the things that they do still have a bit of an issue with is just getting their outside back combinations, um, you know, correct. They haven't had, um, well, in five tests this year, they've only had two games with the same set of outside backs. Um, they're constantly sort of changing between who's on that right wing. Cordero, Delgi, and Buffelli's played there. Um, they've used Buffelli on the left wing and at fullback, so they're not entirely settled on, you know, where they pick and stick all their players, which is a really Australian problem at the moment. So I think if they can just get a decent um, stretch of New Zealand where they just get the same backline playing, um, big shoes to fill with De La Fuente out. And I guess it makes one wing selection a bit easier with no one uh, Imhoff. Um, I don't think he's going either. So hopefully they can sort of work out the best mix there. But they're going to take massive confidence from that. Like a 31-point win against any Tier 1 teams, great. But that's the sort of score you expect to get maybe against an Italy or Japan to really build confidence. To get it against Australia, coming into, you know, two tests against New Zealand, which, you know, is a different kettle of fish. But, you know, they, they can look back at the 2020 victory over them and probably come in with quite a lot of confidence. Yeah, look, it's the my first thought after that game was they just beat us by 31 points and the All Blacks' biggest ever loss in the professional era is 21 points. So they've actually pasted us by significantly more than the All Blacks have lost to anyone ever. 
So it, it's, it really was a very, very big win. And it was really quite frustrating, upsetting, I think, as a Wallabies fan. But the one thing I did take away from it where, well, as you said, I actually, well, I might be paraphrasing here and bastardizing what you said, but I actually don't think that they were nearly as good as what the school line suggested. I actually think that they were good. They put a very good, accurate kicking game. They chased very well. Their forwards were physical. But the Wallabies' back three were absolutely atrocious. I, I can't remember a back three of any side ever being that bad. I And what do they concede, four tries or five tries because of kicks directly? Yeah, and that's the thing. It, it wasn't as if they were smart, well-placed kicks. You know, there was one nice robber at the end that, you know, I think that was all, all hope. Yeah, and... and you know, that's how they should be exploiting teams with kicks because they do have a nice kicking game. They've got quick wingers and they've got, you know, smart, um, experienced test footballers. But, yeah, some of the drops we had, I think, what, Patai had four handling errors just by himself. Um, Tom Wright wasn't a shoot under the high ball. Um, James O'Connor, again, like, he should be the kind of player that, you know, has been in, what, 65 tests. He, he's played in a multitude of positions. He knows how to cover the field. And he's a smart rugby player. But just, yeah, it, it's a real concern that they could... Um, I guess, demonstrate uh, how easy it is to unpack us, especially when we've got games up against South Africa. But um, focusing on Argentina, they, they just executed a game really well. They, they made really minimal mistakes, um, made really clutch tackles, I think, on the try line because we came close to a fair few tries that you know they were able to snuff out um, partially our errors, but also th- they applied a lot of their own pressure. So, yeah, they've got a lot of... Um, a lot of confidence coming into this. Now, I think when you look at the players that they're adding into the squad, Guido Petty's coming back into the mix. You know, he's, I think, finished last year with the most line-out steals in the rugby championship. Uh, they got Mako Vivas and um, Santiago Susino coming back in for um, front row position, so they might be able to cover probably off the bench um, just with some of the players they're missing. So they've got a nice chance to, you know, ruffle the feathers of the Kiwis, especially given... Um, a lot of their experiences in spots where New Zealand don't have experience. Yeah, look, I, I think you kind of touched on it perfectly. I was just about to ask you about your your thoughts on the Type 5 and the the set piece. I mentioned before, I think that their scrum is coming on in leaps and bounds since Czech is kind of, obviously, he's very big on, you know, what is the traditional strengths of the country and how do we lean into that and, I guess, try and use that to push the passion of the side. So they are looking a lot better with, albeit, you know, probably their third choice props um, against the Wallabies, which was massively surprising to me. When you think we've got Slipper and Tupo, I know we had a, you know, third string, fourth string hooker on there, but I would have thought we would have been dominant in that area. So that was really disappointing to see. And obviously I don't think we were overly dominant against England either. So we've got some real work to do in our scrum at the moment, something that I thought was a huge strength. But the Argies, very competitive there. And then when you mentioned Guido Petty, I think there he is... Last year, I was thinking he was arguably the the best lock in the world. Like he, he is yeah. in phenomenal form. Coming, you know, when he does come back from injury, I think he'll add a lot to them. So I think they've really got their set piece in a good place at the moment. They probably need to take one more step in their front row in their in their scrum dominance just to be really happy with traditionally where they see themselves as you know one of the best sides in the world. But they're, they're going so well. And then you move down to the back row and. I think the, the player that stood out to me the most was Juan Martin uh, Gonzalez that played in the first game. The, he's only 21 years old. Apparently he debuted in 2020. I didn't realise. But this is the first time I've really stood up and taken notice of him. I thought he was phenomenal. I can't believe that they didn't pick him for the second game. Yeah, I, I was looking at him. Um, he's – when did he play? He um, got, got that awesome runaway driver, didn't he? I think he was yep. the uh, number six at- yeah, that's right. So, Pablo gave it to him to, to run away and score. Yeah, you know, he, he's a real freak. And I think there's been a lot of um, discussion on Twitter about how just well-rounded the Argentinian back row is. And it's probably a fair point. Like, you've got someone in Prema who can play lock, but is just a big body, awesome in the lineouts, can shift people, um, you know, it borderline penalty magnet, but, you know, does a lot of the hard work and the nitty-gritty in the rucks. But then you've got Matera, who's an absolute freak. He can play loose or tight. Um, he's sort of like a, you know, a Pete Samo on steroids. You know, he's got that ability to cover a lot of positions, but is just an absolute freak when he's in contact. But I, I still think back to that um, try he set up for the Crusaders in the final. You know, putting the grubber through like a back row that can do that sort of stuff. Um, pretty impressive. So yeah, the Argentinians will. I, I think they've got a really good team and a really good coach for next year's World Cup. Um, so they're building quite nicely. 
how they go beyond that, trying to get the depth um, for the younger players in. Like we've only listed probably three players um, between uh, Gonzalez, Carreras, and uh, Thomas Gayo, the Lutad prop. They're probably the only three young guys that are actually getting a big mention at the moment. They, they will need to try and develop some depth, and maybe they try to do that in some of the later games uh, in the end of the year tour. Yeah, I think I think we compare it to where the Wallabies are, and the Wallabies seem to have this ability to have players in their mid thirties or in their early twenties, and there's nothing in between. So yeah. I, I would hope that Argentina have planned that a little bit better than what we have, and that maybe their next group coming through are going to still be quite experienced. But obviously, when you have a look at the crux of the team being built off the Jaguares from in Super Rugby, and obviously they're still playing in their South American competition. Um, they uh, they they aren't getting a lot of game time with any other side at the moment, so they're they're obviously going to have to be picked from that wider squad to come through, which does concern me. So I think this World Cup coming up is the one where they've really got to target a really good result because it's going to be challenging for them to to uh, sustain it. I think in the longer term, the one other one I just wanted to mention before we move on was uh, De La Fuente. Um, he's he is such a weapon. I, I actually rate him so highly as a centre, and it was just. The only reason I wanted to mention him because I heard a few people slagging him off and saying that he wasn't that good. He's an established centre for so many years now. I think he is very, very good. He's just your your gel. He plays like the Lacanio Am, the Lenny Ikatao role in their team where he just has the ability to make good decisions at all times, doesn't get caught out of position much, has the ability to set up and make the players look good around him. Just a phenomenal talent. Yeah. He's interesting too because I'd like to think the um... – the hamstring injury to score a try becomes a, a new thing. You know, people start faking the little <laughs> jog on the spot. Um, that seemed to work quite well. You know, there's I thought it was a genuine concern. I genuinely yeah. thought it was a goosey. It, and it looked like one. And I think uh, it was one of the replays where Nick White actually looked a little concerned for him um, and, and maybe pulled out of making the tackle because he's like, oh, yeah, poor guy, he'll go down. He's just, he's just hamstring <laughs> and just sort of powered through from 10 out. So, um, yeah, I think if teams can start practicing that at training, you know, the, the fake injury, um, you know, maybe a, a fake trip or something like that. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see a lot of teams ex, uh, exploit. And how do you see Checker's influence as a coach and what we know about him from coaching Australia and how that matches with the Argentinian style of rugby as well? Well, it's funny because the first game I thought, oh, cool, he's taken the um, run it at all costs approach and carried it straight through to Argentina because, you know, as you said, they, they kicked 15 times. They were really intent on just keeping ball in hand. And they've got some pretty big players, but they're not, they're not like a South Africa or France. They're not. They're not that size. They are stoppable. So that game plan didn't really work. And then when we saw their sort of kicking game come in, um, it, it actually showed a nice bit of evolution. I think they realised, look, we've got um, the ability to get some of our outside backs involved. I think having um, sort of Felipe Contaponi in the mix. I think he was one of the assistants and probably touted as the next head coach. Yeah. Um, but they've also got a few ex, you know, fly halves and playmakers in that sort of fold. Um, I think that sort of hints towards the fact that, like, no, look, we've got the players to probably execute a kicking game. Let's try and get a bit more of that going. Um, we got, you know, Buffelli's a tall player. We've got speedy um, wingers that can get under the ball like a Codero or Imhoff. So it, it seems as if they're really trying to marry the the two themes of let's run it, let's try and get our ball moving. We're not going to do big clearance kicks all the time, but we will try and, you know, sink in some attacking kicks. We've got the players to do a little grubber or do a little... Um, you know, midfield bomb, even if it's not, you know, seemingly the right option. And it happened to work out against Australia. So I'm keen to see if they back that up against New Zealand. Yeah, look, I think that out of the other two sides, the, the game against New Zealand is probably a better matchup for them. I think, mm. you know, at their strength, they're probably going to play in a similar way to South Africa. And I think that'll be a tough matchup when they just basically have to come over the top of the South African pack if they're going to get dominance. They might have a little bit more flair in how they play through the back line, but... Uh, I, I think that's a really tough matchup for them. Whereas New Zealand, you know, it depends what New Zealand you get and going to play a two-match tour in New Zealand is tough for any country, uh, despite what Pandaren might say. So <laughs> I, I do think it's a, a good chance for them to see if they can back up their win against Australia. My gut feeling is they're going to find it tough. I think mm. that this last week was probably the exception, not the rule to how they were going to play. And like I said, I think we made them look really, really good. And maybe they're they're still trying to work out how they plan to check. And as you mentioned, his selections as well. I still don't think that he really knows what his best side is. And the fact that he's shuffling his hands so much with very experienced players is why I think that. You know, it's not like he's trying to blood a whole lot of young guys in with some of these changes. You're, you're picking him off. You know, like 
the guys, you know exactly what you're going to get from him. He's a very good, experienced winger. They're just trying to work out if they're up to it and who's in the best side. So I think they've still got some sorting out to do to work out exactly what their 23 looks like for the World Cup, but definitely a, a move in the right direction. And I, I'm hopeful for Argentina that Czech has continued to grow since leaving Australia. You know, he's, he was obviously very emotional and I think just doubled down on his idea of run everything and, and just try and bash people where as maybe there's a bit more nuance. And I, I agree, I think Contemporary could be a massive, massive influence for them and trying to have a bit more of a tactical kicking game and controlling the game with a bit more of a plan B. So I'm very excited to see where they go. But let's push on. Let's push on to the team that we should know hopefully better than any other. That is the Wallabies in Australia, obviously. What are your first thoughts about where Australia are at? I think it's just a case of too many players used, um, too much shuffling, like 42 players in, what's that, five tests. It's pretty crazy how many have had to come in and get changed. And, you know, we've had seven debuts already this year. It's a lot of blooding when we've already done, um, you know, I think 20 players previously under running. So it, it's a lot of um, shuffling pieces. I, I think we've got a lot of talent at the moment, but one of our biggest issues is just we've had no opportunity to see what our best team actually looks like. I don't think we've had a single test where we've had what anyone would consider our best 23 available. Maybe arguably one of the tests against South Africa last year. We were looking pretty close to that. Um but yeah, it's just becoming harder and harder to see what that team should look like because as soon as we see a good game from, uh, say, Neville, he gets injured and Frost gets a chance to debut. And then as soon as Frost has a few good games, Arnold comes back and we're sort of shuffling around quite a lot to see uh, what our best team should look like. So for me, the, the big thing to summarise Australia is we've had all this time to develop set combinations. Um, and I think we've done nearly everything except our locks and outside backs. I don't think we know our best outside back combo. I don't think we know our best lock combo either. So they're probably my two areas for concern at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I, we're scrambling to to sort of fill in all the injuries and we're doing reasonably well. But that, that last result is so embarrassing that there really needs to be a massive statement uh, in a fortnight's time. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right with the uh, just the absolute massive injury toll. It's out of control. Obviously, anyone that listens to this probably looks on social media, and the team's been posted up everywhere about injured twenty three or injured fifteen. There's just so many top line Aussie players that have been injured now. It's it's hard to see how we can kind of get any kind of consistency with that. You know, there's what been three concussions, I think, in the last couple of weeks, midweek. So it's going to be really interesting to see if we can get our seven or eight players back this week against South Africa, how much of a change that makes. My only worry is that the players we're getting back are in the forward pack where we're probably not being as outdone, not in the backs. The only backs that we got coming back are Paisami and Callaway, who sure enough will give us a bit of depth and solidify our combinations a little bit more. But it's still asked the question. You know, we're still going to be asking ourselves the question. Kurtley Beale is maybe one choice coming back for fullback, but he was originally targeting the New Zealand games. Then you've got Andrew Kellaway coming back from injury, who, of course, we all rate as this really controlled, composed player at international level, but he still hasn't been playing consistently at fullback. Mm. So when we've got holes over how we're kind of communicating and covering the backfield, it's a real worry to see that we don't actually have any specialist fullbacks in the squad. Uh, barring Campbell, who's not getting a look in, to actually try and cover that back three. And all, all I can see them doing at the moment is putting Kellaway to 15 and putting Tom Wright or Pataira at 14. But I, I just don't think that's going to fix our problem there at the moment. I, I don't really know what those... If I was the outside backs, put it this way, all I'd be doing in training at the moment is kick, taking high balls and working out of communication and where we need to be defensively so that the field is covered. Like how from a set piece, Argentina kick a 50-22 and we don't look like chasing it down is absolutely beyond me. Like what the hell are they covering? Yeah, and th this is a big issue. And something I think, you know, we were even talking about last year is that there needs to be that consistency in these players playing 15 for their club team or playing a lot of minutes there at test level just so they can get used to it. Um, when we look through the club options, Banks, I don't know why he chose to sign overseas at this time. Like, I get that there's a financial incentive, but he's got to know that he's not one of the three players getting picked. Yeah. And so, like, that's just a complete waste. It, it, that happens. We're either fighting tooth and nail to keep him till 2023 and then, you know, he can go overseas after. Or we're like, okay, well... Let's get Tom Wright or you know someone else at fullback just so we can develop that because that's clearly a, you know an area of weakness. 
Um, Ryder's played no Super Rugby at fullback, you know, really other than maybe a few minutes um, when there's been injuries. But um, that, that's a massive issue. Then Callaway, who's our next best option, is getting looked over. Hodge, who was playing fullback over him at club level, which again is another issue. And then I look to the um, Callaway is the, playing centre for the yeah. bulk of the year. Yeah, that's <laughs> like it, it. Just makes no sense how we're choosing to run these options. Patai is getting looked as a fullback. Plays, I think, what three games at fullback for the Reds, maybe, and yeah, then nice, yeah. around. And then on that Australian tour, um, there's only four players that were healthy that didn't get looked at, and two of them are outside backs. Like, why would take Vinavalo and Campbell over if they're not going to get any minutes or any, you know, you know, time to develop their um, as potential right wing or fullback options? So it, it does beg the question: What actually had to happen for Campbell to get game yeah. time? Like, in what situation were they considering using him? And again, like what, one of my big concerns was Pasama got injured. So, you know, for Ketty starts, I'm happy with that. Uh, and we go back to a 5-3 split. Why are we putting Simone and Hodge on the bench who can both cover centre? Hmm. Neither are real wingers. Hodge clearly isn't looked at as our first choice outside back um, or fullback option. So why why are we not putting either Vinavala or Campbell on there just to get a taste and see, okay, these guys can come on and deliver. Let's run with them in future tests. Like, to me, that made no sense. Um, yeah, so we've got a real problem there. I think I think Callaway to fullback and right to wings maybe the safest bet. Because they seem like the ones that could stay there for the long term um, if they say injury-free. And at their best, they look quite good. But, yeah, we don't have a settled option. Um it is a real concern. My only hope is that Paisami coming back means O'Connor and Paisami can play together and they've got at least that little bit of familiarity from the Reds setup. Um, and even then, Paisami plays 13 a lot of the time. It To me, we really just need to nail down. Um, combinations in Super Rugby should match up with combinations in Test Rugby. And it's arguments that I've seen people already have with game line Athletics um, over the weekend because they were saying how the New Zealand team won with you know eight Crusaders players out there. Um, and a lot of Tasman Marcos. Um, and people would argue, well, we had seven Brumbies out there, but they weren't set combinations or they weren't, you know, in those set positions. So maybe, um, you know, the, the introduction of Paisami and getting, you know, Pattaya um, on the bench for impact might have some benefit. Because, yeah, at the moment, the outside backs really aren't clicking. It's probably my biggest concern is just how many points they leaked against a team that didn't create enough pressure to leak that many points. Well, you know, we, we've talked about outside back, but you dropped in James O'Connor there as well. The scary thing for me is that we have three when fit fly halves that we have no idea how good they each are in a, in a settled side. Like we seem to be dropping each one in for one or two games, taking them out again, and then you don't see them for the next four to six weeks. And because of that, I, you know, everyone's saying, oh, Code's definitely the top choice. I don't know that he definitely is. Like the, even the first half that he played, you know, they all say, "Oh, you know, we've won six or seven in a row with Quaid at fly half." The bloke got injured early in the game, forty-two minutes or whatever it was, and we were down when he left the field. And then we came back and won with Lodge there. Like how we're attributing that to Quaid Cooper's influence, I don't understand. The bloke played well, made a good line break, made a good kick in play, also threw away two stupid, stupid passes to give away. Uh, possession once on their line when we should have scored a try, but he threw a dumb offload to Slipper and another one right at the start of the game to put us under pressure to start the match. Like, I don't think yet that he has the actual settled play to consistently play as the fly half that we want him to be. I'm not saying that he's not the 10, but he definitely hasn't shown me that he's so far ahead and shoulders above everybody else. Noah Lalesio, we know, is a developing 10, and James O'Connor hasn't really had much of an opportunity other than whatever that dog's breakfast was on the weekend, which, to be honest, I don't really think he had much control over. I think it was just the back three being completely lost. So either way, I don't think we're learning anything. I feel like we're 12 months further down the line from where we were last year, and all we know is that Quade Cooper's around still. That's it. That's all we've learned. To me, that's my biggest concern is, we needed to have had some clear direction about what we were going to do with fly half because um, we gave it to Lolisio during the French series last year and that, you know, he got a win. I thought, okay, we'll give him some confidence. Um, and I thought Cooper's coming back, that's great. He did a good job against South Africa and um, Argentina. But we didn't give Lolisio any time to develop with him or off the bench. So in all those wins, he wasn't featured on the bench once. You know, we had Hodge or O'Connor. Um, Lolisio didn't come back into the picture until the England game at the end of last year, in which he got a few minutes off the bench only because of other injuries. You know, so it was just 
I, I think we've done a really poor job of actually establishing what the plan is with Lawless here. Because um, he, he could be our starting fly half because he seems to be the only one that's, you know, not injury prone at the moment. So, um, yeah, the, to me, that's a big issue. I think getting the 10 sorted and their 12 combo when Krabby's not there is going to be massive because Krabby's, I mean, he's proven he's the best. He, he's our best option, but he's also not going to be available every single game. Um, we're already seeing flaws in the the picking through overseas picks because Arnold's not going to be here for all of the rugby championship. Um, in Argentina, some of their players aren't coming across because they've got to go back to European duties. It, it's a real issue that these overseas picks, they're not guaranteed to play every match. So, yeah, I, I would like to see just consistency. If we're backing O'Connor, awesome, let's just keep playing him. If we're backing Lola Sierra, let's also keep playing him. But at the moment, I think the longest stretch of tests in a row is maybe five from Cooper. Um and otherwise, we're just chopping and changing. And that's not good enough for, you know, the key position where, you know, we should be building our team from. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm 100% with you. I, I think the the fact that they won't continually pick Lalesio says that they're not convinced he's there yet and they want to develop mm-hmm. him. But when the other top choice at the moment is James O'Connor, who also isn't settled, I think you do need a pick and stick. And then, you know, mm-hmm. if there's an injury, albeit Lalesio comes in and steers the ship for the rest of the season. But I think they've just got to pick and stick Jock and then play from there. So hopefully we see him for the next, well, for the rest of the rugby champs, just starting every single week for me. Alessio yeah. maybe to get a few minutes off the bench, as you said, but the way we use that bench at the moment, I'd be surprised if we actually did give him that opportunity there. Um, you talked about the international players, Rory Arnold. Not only will he not go on the Northern Hemisphere tour, but as you kind of touched on, he's not going to be available to play in New Zealand because his new Japanese club wants him back. I'm sorry, but they signed him knowing that he's playing for Australia. Why yeah. are we now saying that we need to release him in an international window to keep them happy? It's just ridiculous to me. He's actually just turning down the Wallabies now and taking the money. I don't get it. I don't get why we're being nice either. It's always just like, oh, yeah, you know, it's uh, that good faith so that, you know, they, they keep sending the players over. But we've got every right to keep him. So why are we placating the nonsense that they need to see what he's like? Like, they paid all the money because they know he's a world-class player. We know he's a world-class player, which is why we've picked him in the squad. Like, it, yeah, it's just a mess. And, and as people are rightly pointing out, he was not overly good on the weekend. He was it was fine. You know, he, he did his job in the line and scrum's fine enough, but... He didn't look like a million dollar player out there. You know, like we could have easily have had Matt Phillip or, you know, Nick Frost out there performing that role. The challenge now is he's only got two more games before he's gone again. Are we getting that investment? Like we needed him to be there for the full six matches of the rugby championship with the two weeks beforehand, with the weeks in between, so he can get used to the systems. Because otherwise, he's not really having the desired effect. He's a freak for Toulouse because he has, what, 30 games a season with them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's a to me the whole selection of players has been so messy. I think the handling of it last year with the end of year tour when everyone just started pulling out, Sean McMahon left, Quade Cooper left. Um, you know, it, it was just a mess. I thought twenty twenty two they'll fix it. They've got the clear rule, and they're just proving no, it, it's still messy. So yeah, look, it, uh, it, 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 it pisses me off. I'd, I'd rather we just pick the players that are domestically playing, and they just played a form. And if we happen to get them and they're in freakish form like a Karevi, then they just slot right back in. I, I think um, the relationship that they're talking about saving, going back to your first point, is not between Australian rugby and a Japanese club. It's between the Japanese club and the player who they are employing that they're trying to stay on the good side. But why are we letting them sign players when the precedent is being set that despite them being available for the Wallabies in the international windows, we're only going to take them for three games? Yeah. It, it, it actually sets the worst precedent because it undermines the international eligibility Oh, sorry, the uh, the window where you have to be able to give up your players. Like, if people start doing that, then we may as well throw that rule out the window. It makes absolutely no difference. As I come back to, as I said, to come back to it, Rory Arnold signed this contract with that Japanese club knowing that he should be available for the Wallabies for all of the international windows. So then why are we pandering to this idea that he's not actually needing to be available for all of them? It makes no sense. And I dare say that Rory Arnold has two games to play his heart out. Otherwise, I don't think he'll play at the World Cup. We, as you said, we have enough other locks 
that we can pick someone else. Skelton will get an opportunity at the back end of the year. Isaac Rod is still to come back into the side. Darcy Swain is playing the house down. Matt Phillip is a very solid option in Australia. I, I actually think if we only allowed three players on the Giddo Law, which I believe will stay, I don't think they'll change it. I reckon he's got two games to give himself a shot at the World Cup. Otherwise, he's done for. And I think it's his own doing. Yeah. And, and that's probably the big issue for me is that we've got still... Um, not not a settled side completely. We, we've tested all these options. Um, Rennie's used sixty three players since he's taken over, and twenty five of them have played five or less games. You know, like there's a lot that have just sort of been makeshift players or just filled in for games here or there. We're still developing, um, which is all well and good. If I could play like Fakedi, he might get more caps and you know become an established center, which is awesome. But we've just had to chop and change so much and so frequently that th- there's just been no. Um, I guess ability to build what should be a really settled sort of 30-man squad. And the ghetto law, the three-man overseas law, just isn't helping at the moment because we're not getting these players for long enough to actually see if they're, you know, in contention. Like three tests for Skelton off the bench last week where we took Philip and Swain to Europe and they played nothing. Was that useful? Did that benefit at all? Like there's Mm. there's some real issues with that. So I I want them to iron that out. On on that on that point, who's your, your international picks for the Northern Hemisphere tour? Let's let's call that now because obviously Quaid unavailable, Karevi unavailable, Arnold unavailable, who are our original three along with uh, Corin Betty, who is also unavailable, I believe, as well. Mm. Yeah, it's tough. So we, we want some European-based players. And for me, I, I probably wouldn't be going for all three. The ones I'd be looking at is um, Brendan Pangaramosa, Um He's someone that I think could be a decent option just because I've never, well, no, I shouldn't say never. I'm not currently a fan of um, Lockie Lonigan. I, I don't think he's, you know, a, a test match ready hooker just yet. He, he did an okay job for someone that hadn't started a test match before. But for me, I think he, he's just got to keep developing in Super Rugby. He's still quite young. He doesn't have the big body. He is quick. Uh, um, but th- that's not really what you need in Test Rugby for a hooker. So I want Brendan Pangramosa to come back as that third uh, hooker. I thought he had some good form under Rennie. Um, outside of that, some of the options you could look at is maybe like a, a Richie Arnold if, if we were facing another lock shortage. Um, or if Hooper's still not right to play, you might consider a, a Liam Gill or Colby Feinger, someone that's you know an out-and-out seven that's plenty experienced. But I, I don't think we'll be racing to fill those positions. I, I think... Um, you know, we should be trusting domestically and not thinking we need to use all three, um, you know, just because we can, but only doing it if we if we don't have the options locally that can fill that void. Yeah, I'm with you. I actually don't think they'll they'll fill all of them. I think Skelton's the one that they will pick. But mm. BPA, my worry for that is the only reason I'd be picking him is to see if he could be a potential late inclusion in the World Cup squad if there's an injury. Like, I mm. agree with you. I think he needs to be above Lockie Lon again and therefore he needs to understand the system for the World Cup next year. But I'd still be picking Parecki and Fenga, who are in Australia, over him, in which case he's your third-choice hooker and we're bringing him into a squad. And potentially mm. if we're giving him game time, then that means it's disrupting the development of the other guys. So really I only want him around the squad so he understands what we're doing. So if we get to an injury crisis at a World Cup, we're not picking Lonnie Lonigan as our starting hooker in a World Cup semi-final when he's, you know, 22 years of age or whatever it is. So I I don't mind it there, but I really probably don't even want to see him get any game time other than maybe off the bench if we do. Um, Will Skelton, I mentioned, I think deserves a bit of a run, but only if we're serious about picking him as that big body player that he is. And it's quite clear that he needs to spend time in the system consistently if he's going to be good. We can't be picking him for three games and then dropping him back out and expecting him to do this phenomenal role that he's done with some of these club sides, same as Rory Arnold. And Richie Arnold, I don't know, he's not even a Wallaby, is he? Like, Do we really need to bring in yeah. another locking option to see what they can do? I just think it's um, it, it's going to create more problems than it fixes. So I'm with you. I think Will Skelton for sure, which you didn't say, but I'm going to say, yep. And uh, and also I'm going to go with um, BPA as a third option. Yeah. But uh, on that note, let's push, hey? Let's uh, talk about South Africa briefly. I think they're probably the most settled squad and a bit easier to talk about. Yeah, so that pair at the moment seem really quite um, settled on their 23. They don't make, you know, a heap of changes other than that second test against Wales, which, you know, was always just prescribed because I wanted to make sure that they could see, you know, how the, the other 20 players in their squad went. Um, to me, their only issues at the moment are finalising a backup in the halves. Um Pollard's the general, but, you know, Elton Yanchis was shocking that first test. They don't have another fly half 
sort of in the squad ready to play unless they, um, you know, want to shift Valenza or LaRue, who really don't play a lot of minutes there. Um, and then scrum half, they've had injuries to Clerk and Reinach, and they just need to try and sort out who's going to be that backup. Um, I think Jaden Hendricks has done an awesome job so far. He's got a really solid kicking game. Um, just how they sort of balance that out, because Herschel Yanchi's form's sort of gone out the window after a really awesome 2019. Um, and their issue, I guess, for the tours against Australia, which is somewhat beneficial for us, is their right wing. Like, every option they've put there has just become injured. So between, what, Colby and Kosey, Creel and Arenza, they've all been uh, either injured or suspended. So um, what they do there to try and fill that void is really interesting. We saw Lukanya Am do a great job there. But I think a lot of the talk at the moment is potentially shifting Mpimpi so that they can bring in a, a genuine left winger as well, like a Fassi or... Um, you know, they could even look to someone like uh, Hendricks or um, uh, Sanatla who, who play wing locally. But then Kayla Moody's someone that's been called into the squad as a genuine right wing. Um, hasn't been in the squad before, hasn't been capped before. Um, but could be an option between him or uh, Warwick Kalant to fill in on the right wing. So that could be beneficial to us that they don't have, you know, their first four options in that position. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the only uh, worry is that Jesse Creel's only a concussion, right? So he should be back pretty quickly. I don't know how long since he's actually had a concussion. I don't remember hearing anything about a previous history of it. So that means he could turn it around in six or seven days pretty pretty easily. So I think he should be, I would expect, a, a decent chance to play against the Wallabies. Um, but look, for me, I think they've got an established way of how they're playing now ever since Erasmus took over. And I don't think anything's changing with that game plan. I think they've got a forward pack that just breathes depth at the moment and they have this ability to kind of drop players in to play the exact same role. I thought that they obviously have a very simplistic game plan which serves them very well for bringing new players in. And Aranze, is it? Aranze, the right winger? Mm. Is that how you say his name? Um, <laughs> I've been guessing. Sort of, yeah, just butchering it there, sorry. But, um, look, I, I thought he was phenomenal coming in on a right wing as a player that really is, uh, a, relatively speaking, a rookie. He looked like an established player, you know. Mm. So I, I think the big thing for me is they keep things simple and it makes it so easy for their players to to stick to their systems. Their defensive pattern looks so good because they're just told, you know, just go with Lacanio Am as a winger. Just whatever he does, just press forward if he presses forward and don't if he doesn't. And then he just makes the right decision every single time because he's the world's best player. Just yeah. sliding that in there. Um, but, uh, look, I, I think that that's a really strong point for them. But for me, it's just the plan B, you know. Like, everyone talks about the fact that they don't actually blast any team off the park. And I think that's a real issue for them because even when they're dominant, that one or two bounces of the ball go the wrong way and they lose the game. So, you know, they were incredibly dominant against New Zealand, the most I've ever seen them against a really one of the top sides in the world, and they won by 16 points. You know, on another day, New Zealand still could have etched out a win there, despite the fact that they were just not in the game to start with. And I think we saw that in the next test following up. South Africa 10% off the pace and they got knocked off. So for me, they need to find a way to score more points than what they are. Their rolling mall, I would think, should be a way that they can score try after try after try, but it's not quite there consistently yet. And they need to work out how to actually leverage the attack that they have in their back line because there are so many good players. I'll be surprised. I I, I hear what you're saying about the left wing option and, and using that instead because you've got someone like Farsi in reserves, but it would really surprise me to see Mapimpi on the right wing. I don't, I don't think his game suits that role really at all. You know, he, he's obviously a good chaser of the high ball, but other than that, I don't think he serves the same kind of role as what those other wingers did on that right wing. So I think that would be a real issue for them if they did and probably expose a bit of a hole there. The big worry for me is I just think that their game suited perfectly to Australia's weaknesses at the moment with their ability to bash forward through the uh, through the ruck, put up a dead accurate up and under for our back three, and then they scrum the house down and they scrum for penalties. So that'll be the real litmus test yeah. for our scrum. And, geez, it's been a while since we've been seeing our scrum going back on skates, but I'm a bit worried. Yeah, I, I think th- that's going to be a massive concern. It, it does, you know even harbour even more fear that, you know, that team on the weekend, they could still add, um, still add, <laughs> they could still add uh, Bongi Manambi, they could still add um, Aki Snyman to that um, type five, like Vermeulen's only just coming back to fitness, um, Peter Sefter Toys only just coming back to fitness, then they're two world-class players, and we still haven't really seen much of Evan Roos, we still haven't seen much of um, Elric Lowe, like they've, they've got a lot of players 
that can, you know, really beef up that tight five and add a lot of flair when needed. So um, the, for me, they're, they're a scary team to come up against. I think you're right. They don't score a lot of points and they don't put teams away as they should. And it's crazy that the two margins between the Springboks win and New Zealand win were pretty similar margins of victory. But the first game, Springboks were so dominant and, you know, won by a similar margin to a New Zealand team that was a little bit better than South Africa, you know? So yeah. it, it is crazy to see what they could do uh, if they're both really just going hammer and tongs. Yeah, and I, I think that New Zealand played it a lot better with Richie Moe to try and get around that kind of that all-encompassing kind of rush defence out wide to try and get the ball across. You know, there was a couple of little highlights of Richie Moe's little chip kick across field, David Avili doing the same. Like You can put the ball in behind them, and I don't think they have a really good tactic to defend that very well. So it's obviously a high risk, but when you think about you're probably comparing that as an option to the up and under. I actually think it's a really, really good play in that kind of middle portion of the field. So I think teams will start doing that more and more against them because it's just the only way you can break that that defence down. Um, and then, you know, unless you've got Artie Severe on the wing, then it doesn't matter how you get in the ball. That's, yeah. the, that's the only other trump card that New Zealand have. But, yeah, it, it look, very, very good side. I think probably, in, and I, I know that South, South Africans won't want to hear this, but I think probably a bit overrated. At the moment, they're just so good at what they do, but I'm not sure that they're, they're they're probably positioned well in the world rankings. To be honest, for a team that is the World Cup champs, you know, I, I think it's about where they are. They're a really good side, but they just need another string to their bow and a way to put more points on teams to really capitalise and make themselves a genuine top team in the world or the genuine top team in the world. And uh, New Zealand, mate, as a, as a, as we round it out. Give us your thoughts, first of all, on where they're at. Who's going to coach next game? Maybe we'll start with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope Foster. Um, is that a as a Wallabies of... fan you hope Foster or yeah. as a Kiwi fan you hope Foster? You know, honestly, a little bit of both. I, I think I, I like a strong New Zealand, uh, which is a stupid thing to say for someone that's, you know, followed a team that's never won the Blood as I Cup since I've been a fan. But um, I, I like a strong New Zealand. I think there's something nice about when they beat us, but they're also beating everyone else. Um, there's something at least, you know, a bit of solidarity in that. But no, I, I like to see them actually doing a, um, you know, good job week in, week out. Um, and ideally, I want to see Robertson get a crack with the job. But that's going to happen, you know, when he's got time to prepare, time after the World Cup. If they throw him in there now, they're doing, you know, interim makeshift coach now. That's not really doing anything that's going to benefit, um, you know, New Zealand in the long term, I don't think. So, I think Foster's got his win. He's proven that he can do it. He's proven that he's got, you know, the, the players there are fine. They've got full support. Like, I know um, Aaron Smith and Richie Moyinger made a really big deal to make sure they posted photos with Foster after the game to show, yep, this is our coach, this is our man, this is our leader. So, yeah, I think just keep everything as is. Um, to me, they've got to change the squad up or start using the squad more. Like, they didn't take a massive squad over there. And still, they're not using Sever Reese, Hoskins Tutu, Patrick Tupolotu. Um, Stephen Parafetta, Lester Fanganuku, or um, Roger Tuivasa-Shek. Like players that could get minutes in pretty much every other team and in positions where they weren't looking dominant. Um, it, it's kind of interesting that they're really that unsure of what their team should look like. And I think nearly every New Zealander is calling for Colin Grace to get a spot somewhere in the squad. Every New Zealander's calling for Coles to, you know, either <laughs> pull a finger out or get out of the team because he's, you know, probably a little bit past it. You know, we're leaving players like Kurt Eklund and Asafo Amua just sort of playing NPC when you've got aging, you know, once great All Blacks, but not really delivering. So to me, I think it's a little bit of um, trying to follow the South African recipe of uh, let's get the old boys in and just keep them here to the World Cup just because, you know, they've been there, done that. But New Zealand's so different to every other country. They are, regardless of the world ranking, they're the most talented rugby players in the world. And I don't think it's even in question. I think the best rugby talent is in New Zealand. Um, they just don't have the right team together at the moment. And for a lot of people probably don't have the right coach. I think personally with the coach, get the um you know, you know, get the right mix of players in there that suit the game plan. And they're gonna be a, a real force to be reckoned with. I think Jason Ryan's come in. They've got such an elite pack. If they could just get some stronger props in there, um they could really, you know, terrorize teams again. So they're not far off. And that win on the weekend showed that I think they've definitely been damaged badly in their front row by their prop injuries. You know, losing Moody, La Lala, and Ofatunga Fase. I think that's just three 
Excellent. And definitely their best three props by a country mile. To lose those three, they are a little bit shallow in their depth there. I think, you know, Ethan DeGroote is really making strides at the moment. But even Tyrell Lomax, despite a good performance on the weekend, I'd suggest you he's not going to be a consistent top international prop for a few years yet as a young man coming through. So I, I think that's just really, really hurt their forward pack at the moment. And I think that they're that's probably responsible for some of their issues there. I agree with you. I think Asafra Mua, more than anyone, needs to be among that side now. They're obviously not going to play both Coles and uh, and what's his name, your Crusaders hooker. Yeah, Taylor. Yeah, Cody Taylor as well. So if they're both not on the side, then surely Amor needs to be in there as the next man that can be more damaging. You know, I, I love Kurt Eklund, but I'm not sure that he has the physicality that's needed at test level, to be completely honest with you at the moment. So I would have him on the bench every day of the week. Um, you mentioned Patrick Tuopolo. That man was an absolute beast before he left New Zealand. Maybe it's just a case of him not being back for long enough, but I think he's exactly what they need in their second row. And while they're confused as to what to do with their six, I'm not going to say it's my favourite option, but you could put Scotty Barrett dog roll to six and <laughs> Tuopolo to, to lock as well. And I think that probably gives you the set beat prep set piece prowess as well as the physicality in the team and the experience in the team that they probably need so i think that will solve a lot of problems for them but um i'll, I'll throw the uh the most controversial question on draft rugby chats for the last probably three years what's your back row balance what, what do we do with sam kane <laughs> yeah can we uh bring back lucky both here are we <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah you've nailed it you get it, yeah. get it on the head in one um uh <laughs> This has been such an interesting decision because, like, they just don't have the right mix at the moment. And I think, honestly, the player they're missing the most is Ethan Blackadder because I think he's probably got that right mix of he's an absolute mongrel. So he does all the hard work he'd want a six to do if they chose to play him at six. He's awesome over the ball if they chose to play him at seven. But he also counters really well and, um, I guess, complements the skill sets of players like a Frizzell if they want to go really hard in that sort of physicality or if they want to put in a Hoskins to two to eight um, just to play a bit looser. With the current squad, I think I'd probably like to see a Frizzell, Sevilla, Satutu back row and just go really all-out um, attack. Sevilla is still a freak over the ball, but then they've got those damaging runners. Um, Sam Kane, to his credit, had his best game. Um, that was his his answer to the critics. You know, he stepped up, he tackled, he made his runs. He, he happened to score a try as well. Like, he, he did look um, a lot more involved, but still, I think... They've not had the back row or backline combinations overly well set this year. And to me, Frizzell, Sevilla, Satutu, just seeing those names on paper scares the shit out of anyone, I would think. Um, you throw in a blackout when he's back from injury. The fact that, you know, Luke Jacobson and Peter Gasol-Kula aren't even in this conversation either, it, it's just crazy that, that they've got so many back row options and yet they seem quite reliant on, um, you know, having Sam Kane there at seven when I don't think he's probably even in the top seven or eight of the form back rowers. Yeah. Um, at the moment, though, my, my biggest question mark is that surely a Luke Jacobson or Dalton Papali'i gets considered as a seven while um, Ethan Blackhead is injured just because I think they probably got that right mix as well of um, being a bit younger, which helps, but really good over the ball and also damaging in attack. So I think they, they probably provide a little bit more of a mix if they were to try and change it up now. Yeah, look, I... I... I think we, uh, we're we probably thinking similar lines of you basically pick Artie Sevilla first as the world-class player and probably one of the best players in the world at the moment, and then you have to pick everything else around it. Frizzell, for him to be in that starting side, he needs to be at his absolute best because at his absolute best, he deserves to be a starting all-black, but I think we probably see that 20% of the time, and then otherwise he goes a little bit quiet. So, yeah. and you know, coming back from injury, it's a big ask. I thought he was good on the weekend, but... I'm, I feel like they've rushed him in there because they're looking for an answer when the easier answer is, as you said, look for someone like Dalton Papali'i who has absolutely played yeah. the house down for the Blues and captained them this year as well um, to take over from Sam Kane. But they're just so steadfast in their thought that he has to be their first player and their first player picked and their captain. And, you know, you, you said it on the weekend, he had a fantastic game, but, geez, he's done that on the back of probably his worst game ever. Yeah. And, you know, how many make or break games can we give this bloke where he breaks and breaks and breaks and breaks before he has a good game and go, okay, all is forgiven. I'm sorry, you can't be, as the captain of the side, good in one of every five games and ineffective in the other four. So, you know, he spent a lot of time on the wing last game and obviously that's a tactical thing that the All Blacks sometimes do with their back row. But, geez, he's not having the back row. He, does, he doesn't have to cover it, clean out, sorry, 
the big bodies that he would if he yeah. was in the middle of the park. So they're using him away from the big impact zone. So, again, they're losing a little bit of physicality there. And the try is probably the icing on the cake that makes him look even better than he was. But really, he's just hovering on the wing and he, he was in a favourable position that, you know, you often saw Kieran Reid and Richie McCall kind of scoop up those tries as well. So they're nice, but I don't say that, think that they say much about the actual performance of the player. So I, I'm with you. I think I'm probably picking Artie Sevilla first, which means then because of that, I'm picking probably Dalton Papali'i at seven. And I'd, I'd probably go after last week, I'd give Frizzell another run at six, but I'm not convinced that's the way to go. I'd have no problem moving Artie over to six and then picking Hoskins to Tutu as well. I think that he deserves a better chance as well. Yeah. Um, in the in the backs to round us off, you know, obviously Aaron Smith is the walk-up starter at nine. I think they're missing someone like TJ Perinara, to be honest with you. I know that he's come back from overseas and hasn't been given a real good opportunity. I think that that kind of physicality and mongrel that he can bring at the back end of the game is really missing. And I like Finlay Christie, but I just think that that's something that's hugely missing from the side. But then let's be honest, the big question just comes back to what the hell do you do with the rest of the back line and, and specifically 10? Just yeah. want to quickly give us your thoughts there. Yeah, I, I think it, it's tough because Bowden Barrett was actually one of the best players and, you know, their losses. It's just that the team doesn't seem to have clicked around him. I would have really liked to have seen at some point just that 10-12 combination of um, Barrett and Roger Tuovasashek because I think they'd actually complement each other quite well. Barrett doesn't need another playmaker because he's just a wizard. Like when he's got things clicking, he can do the kicks to himself. He, he can set people up outside him. He's got one of the best tactical kicking games going around when he's in form. And I think then Roger Tuovasashek is sort of the exact opposite. He's, you know, what they've been needing is someone that can playmake but is just going to crash the ball, make strong tackles, um, distribute to players that, you know, are, are in a better position than him. Um, I, I would really like to see that. To me, probably the big issue is just that that center mix. I think Havili was a world-class fullback that they've turned into a 12, and Rico Iwani was a world-class wing that they've turned into a 13. Um, their big issue, they've never really settled on what position each centre is. So Tapai has played a bit of 12 and 13. He played a bit of wing this year for the Chiefs. Um, Leonard Brown and Goodhue are both injured, but they can both alternate between 12 and 13. And I think their best centre combination probably does include at least one of those two, um, potentially even both, depending on what sort of game plan they're looking at. So they've just got a lot of issues that really can't be resolved right now because they don't have all their best players available. And then you couple that in with Will Jordan being the, probably the best fullback in the world playing on the wing as well. So they've got all these players that might not be in their best position. Um, to me, I, I think persevere with Richie Moanga. Um, I think he's a, a freakish talent. I think he leads the game well and he needs more time to. And I think you can always rely on Burton Barrett to do that if needed. Like he's played 100 tests. He's, he's done, you know, all this before. He can play that um, bench role like he did for Dan Carter for so long. Or he can start a game and, you know, dominate from the get-go if needed. But he's also a bit more versatile and can add a punch at fi um, 15 off the bench, which I always quite like when they've got that um, combination. I don't think it worked when they were both starting together, but it's a nice injection to have someone that freakish come off. Um, to me, though, I I'd be keen to see more Leicester flying in Uku. I don't think we've seen the full package from Caleb Clark. I think he's been pretty good in attack, but maybe not awesome in defence. Um, and not that flying in Uku would be light years better, but I think him as a bench option gives you the option to really get some extra pace and speed um, and size on the wing. Or if there's injuries to the centers, put him in at 13 and he's got a really nice, um, you know, sort of crash ball option there as well, uh, which worked previously when they had players like Tana among her, um, you know, filling into that spot. So they're probably two players I'd like to see get a bit more game time, but it, it's the classic New Zealand problem of everyone's talented. Just what's the best combination? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, look, I, I think it doesn't matter who you pick at 10 out of Bowie and Richie. They're both phenomenal and they're both going to do a fantastic job. They've just got to keep picking and sticking him back in the man. Look, I just think they're missing some go forward in that team, that back row. So I think they either need to put something like Geordie Barrett to 12 and then that means that they can put Jordan to 15 and they can bring like a Sebu Reese onto the right wing who can go hunting for the ball. He's so effective getting go forward and coming and playing off his wing um, or just, just slotting Lamarpe in at 12 and just... Yeah, fighting the bullet and calling him back, and he is exactly what they need to get go forward. So I think that's that's for me the balance that you talked about. I like that mention of Jordy Barrett to twelve because while you know the Canes tried to do it and it was you know sometimes successful, I think if he played twelve, I'd love to see Bowden at ten because I think you can't underestimate like how much they would have passed the ball to each other in their lifetime. 
Like it just, it'd be so easy to set up those combinations. I think you'd find there'd be like nearly no drop ball. They'd know exactly where they're going to be and you know, what to do in that option. Um, th- so there is something to be said about that combination. I, I don't, I think Foster's made it <laughs> relatively clear. He, he sees him as a fullback and doesn't want to use him on the wing or 12, which, you know, uh, to each his own. But yeah, it, it's um, it definitely an option. And I think would be really interesting to see how they worked as a combination. Because yeah. again, like New Zealand just need to settle on their combinations. The, the players themselves are all bar prop um, are pretty much world class. And so they've just got to, you know, get those guys set in stone and, you know, see how they can build in the what, 14 remaining games until the rugby uh, World Cup starts. Yeah, look, my, my final thought probably before we wrap up is they just need to work out their attacking shape just still looks a little bit confused. And mm. uh, there's people way smarter than both of us trying to work that out at the moment. But it it maybe it just comes down to the fact that they are changing their backline so much that they can't actually get themselves into a position where second, third, fourth phase in, they know where they need to be to work together. You know, there were so many passes. It's like nothing I've ever seen from the All Blacks being thrown to nobody out on the wing at the moment. I think they just need time together and they need a settled attacking phase, maybe a little bit simplified at the moment because of the fact that it's not working and they're looking a little bit confused. And I think if they can get that right, they'll go back to the All Blacks that we know. And whoever coaches them, you know, my only other takeaway is Ian Foster has been dragged through the mud. It's actually pretty disgraceful how the media have just have treated him. And as someone that doesn't necessarily think he should be the coach, I just think that it could have been done so much better. So it's really disappointing, even all the way to Mark Robinson's interview on the week during after this game. Like, it just yeah. makes no sense. The bloke looked like he rolled out of bed and decided to do a press conference and just basically throw him under the bus again. So very disappointing how the New Zealand media has managed that. But, Matt, I know you need to go. So let's wrap up on that note. Thanks so much for coming on. Always good talking footy and uh, more daytime pods, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure. Um, we just got to make sure we get some sort of thermos so we can sneak the red wine still uh, without it looking too conspicuous. But yeah, and no, I really enjoyed the chat, Harry. Um, good to be able to come on and, and talk rugby. Kim and I don't get the time uh, all that often anymore. So thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. Thanks, mate.